Today's passage is from Luke 20, 27 to 40. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the, of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Evelyn, uh, for reading that passage for us. Uh, it's just want to encourage us uh, that is a beautiful sight uh, for me as a pastor and as a fellow uh, Christian brother in Christ here to see uh, all of you praying. Uh, it's a beautiful sight when the people of God are praying uh, and seeking him uh, together. Uh, we're in a series called Living Life As, uh, where we'll be exploring, we've been exploring the different roles that we have uh, in life, last week, Pastor Bill Wong from Union Gospel Mission came, started off the series for us by talking about friendship. And you're going to see how that's going to be important, uh, the, the theme of spiritual friendship, uh, companionship, in terms of moving forward in our relationships. And as, if you're looking at this uh, design, uh, we actually took this from uh, another church who, who has offered it up. Uh, I think it's a church in Texas somewhere uh, that designed this. Uh, but we're living life as, with all the different roles uh, that, that we have. Uh, last week we talked about as, uh, all of us have roles as friends, and then this week we're talking about uh, people that live life as singles and what it looks like for people uh, that are living life as in, in singlehood and singleness. And today uh, I was actually quite anxious going into this message because I feel like it's one of those messages are going to make and break uh, someone's views uh, on something. So I pray for much grace. Uh, pray for me as I'm sharing this message. That will be words of grace and truth. Uh, from God, but today it, it might be more of teaching than it is preaching uh, on, on this topic. And this is a tough message to prep, but such an important message for us to discuss. And you can probably tell from my manuscript, I'm, I'm going to stick to it a little bit more because I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, more, the, more importantly, I want to be theologically correct uh, in terms of explaining and, and this unpacking this topic here for us. So, some of you this morning, uh, you might be encouraged which I'm hoping will be most of you uh, by understanding this topic. Uh, some of you might be offended uh, by what I share this morning, but I hope for all of you that as we're singing, that you would see and experience a little bit more of Jesus this morning uh, through, through this message. 
there's a story uh, of a man who had a spoon that looked a lot like this, except he had the spoon in a sugar bowl. And it would frustrate his guests as they come in and they try to scoop sugar into their tea, into their coffee, and they're like, why do you have a spoon like this uh, in a sugar bowl to, to begin with? It would frustrate his guests and they're like, why, why do you have such a thing on your kitchen table? And he would watch them struggle and he would kind of chuckle and laugh uh, a little bit. And I don't know why he didn't change his spoon until one that was uh, different uh, than this. But it wasn't until later that he found out, and maybe some of you would recognize this already, some, it wasn't later until we found out that this spoon is actually meant for scooping out olives, uh, olives out of the olive bowl, and that the holes were drained the oil uh, out so that you can enjoy the olive uh, without, eating all the, uh, without eating the oil and drinking the oil as well. And I started with this illustration because maybe singleness is a bit like that, where we view it as a spoon with a hole in it that there's an image for us that the spoon ought to be a certain way and singleness isn't very much understood uh, in the church and within our Christian world. Uh, why is it important to talk about singleness? Well, four reasons that I could think of and maybe some more for you. First of all, singleness, it can be difficult. I, want to, I just want to say that right out in the beginning here, that singleness can be difficult for, for many. It's not always easier uh, as some would ought to, uh, as we try to encourage those that are single. It's also not a matter of being better or not. It's actually a difference between simplicity and complexity. It's not better or not. Marriage is better than singleness. Singleness is better than marriage. It's actually a matter of simplicity and complexity. Simply put, when you add more parts to something, it becomes more complicated. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Toronto, and I went through the security gate. All things were going well. I went through the security gate in five minutes. I can't remember the last time with my family, uh, with our two, now three kids, going through the security gate. Uh, it takes us way longer. But it's also harder, because I was talking to quite a few friends over the last couple months on this topic, and I was talking to a friend who is single, and he was saying that for him, for many families, on the Sabbath day, on a Sunday, it's the best time of it's the best day of the week for them, but for him, there's many days where he struggles with it. That the Sabbath day is actually the loneliest day for him, as everyone else is out spending time with their family and maybe with their, the, the, someone that they're dating. Uh, he is by himself, trying to find the purpose for that day. Or another friend I was talking to that, even though it's true that you might be able to get through the security gate easier and you can travel a little bit easier, uh, she was asking the question of. Of, of where are all the single men, and, and that's a, uh, a single Christian men specifically, that's a topic maybe for another time. I think the church is severely lacking uh, godly Christian men <laughs> in the church, but that's another topic. Uh, but she would explain this, I, I'm, I'm, st I'm, I'm still single and I'm feeling left behind when I spend time with other couples, and somehow I feel like I'm deficient, that I feel like I haven't evolved in life that I haven't met the, the next level. And the challenge of hanging out with other couples and n trying not to be discouraged and other people not being discouraged is a real struggle. So singleness can be difficult. Secondly, we're all single at one point and we'll be likely single again. What do I mean by this? Well, many of us are single growing, you know, my son uh, Hudson, who's three months, he's single, <laughs> right? You're born into the world uh, single and I, Justin and I have this realistic view in life that we're, it's not going to be like the movies where at the end of our lives we're going to be holding each other's hands and, you know, three, two, one, you know, we, you know, we, we both go to heaven uh, <laughs> together in this very, very romantic 
kind of way. Well, whether, it, whether you're, you're dating now or married now, one day we will be maybe widowed or maybe some of us have gone through divorce, that none of us are going to be married in heaven at the very end of the day, age, so we can be single again. Uh, thirdly, it's because we're a church body. Uh, we're a church body, and what affects one part of the body affects us all. It's not only for the singles to learn about singleness, but for the entire church because it might help us build an understanding of one another, of those who are single in our church. Uh, we, are, we, we can bring clarity to one part of the body. If we can do that, we can bring clarity to one part of the body. It will bring maybe an understanding and a clarity to the whole of what it means to be a church altogether. You see, in the church, as I mentioned this before, maybe we don't do a very good job. I don't do a very good job talking and discussing this topic of singleness. Where in the church, especially in the Christian world, if you're single and you're over 21, the conversation gets awkward at that time. It's like, hey, are you seeing anyone? It's like, no, I'm single right now. And we tend, especially some of the church uncles and aunties, you know, kind of push that a little bit. Like, oh, I don't really know what to talk about anymore uh, after that that, that point. And just a few tips here. If someone is, is single and they're struggling with it and it's difficult for them, don't in that moment tell them singleness is a gift. All right, in that moment, they're really not feeling that. <laughs> That's not really helpful for them. Or if they're struggling with singleness, they're bearing their soul to you for, for you to tell them, you're married to Jesus. All right, it's going to be okay. And maybe that's not helpful, even though it may be true <laughs> in some aspect. Or three, you'll find your spouse when you stop looking. So stop trying so hard. All right, you know, just don't worry about it. The moment you stop looking, you know, your Prince Charming is going to come through the door. Uh, at that moment, or your, your print, what's the other term? Uh, your print, the princess is going to come through the door, and you're going to super off her feet. Or number four, if someone says, oh, I'm struggling with singleness and, and finding a, a partner to date, or uh, um, don't, don't say, oh, I'll be praying for you. Because <laughs> what's that supposed to mean? See, we don't have the language to talk about singleness. See, it gets into this awkward zone where we can't express and understand, uh, help each other understand this topic. Uh, fourthly, our church, maybe that's into this part, our church needs a firmer understanding. Uh, that's why we need to talk about it. Our church doesn't talk about it enough, but our church needs a firmer understanding. When we don't understand friendship, like what we talked about last week, it affects all relationships. And in the same way, when we don't understand singleness, it affects all the relationships, all other relationships as well. You see, the illustration with the spoon, it, it might display how many think about singleness. Singleness isn't a spoon that's supposed to be whole, uh, but just has some holes in it. Singleness is not a deficiency because we need singles in the church. Singleness shouldn't be defined as something awful where it's often, as you talk, think about it, it's defined in the negative, right? Singleness is defined as the absence of, of something. Singleness are those who are, what, unmarried. That's how we often define it. But that's strange because we don't define marriage in that way. Like marriage are those that are unsingle. Uh, we don't define it in the same way. See, the word single, uh, singleness or singlehood, it doesn't appear in the Bible, but we can form, we can still form a biblical theology for this topic. Culturally speaking, uh, we understand this to be true. You're taken or not single if you're dating someone, you're cohabitating, you're engaged, or you're married. In our culture, we'll say that person is not single, but biblically, it's a little bit different. Biblically speaking, someone is single unless you're married. I'm going to say that again. You're single, no matter how committed, 
no matter the situation, no matter the context, until you are married. And from the point of view from Christianity, you're still single, whether you're unmarried or committed. And this makes a lot of sense then of when we understand the rest of Scripture in terms of the, the, uh, our understanding of sexual ethics, of what that looks like. If that's our definition of singleness and married, then we can understand why the Bible talks about sexual ethics in the way that they talk about sexual ethics, in the way that's framed within the biblical definition of what marriage ought to be. And we'll talk about that a little bit more to come, uh, in the weeks to come. But there are three main passages that refer to singleness. There's Luke 20, which Evelyn read for us today, and we'll stick mainly to that. There's also Matthew 19. Uh, Jesus addresses divorce and starts talking about eunuchs, and you're like, what, <laughs> what does that have to do with it? Uh, but we get the idea here that singleness, more specifically celibacy, is a gift. And 1 Corinthians 7 is the third passage which we often refer to where Paul refers to singleness or more, again, specifically, as commentators say, uh, celibacy, uh, celibacy as a gift that God gives. And just maybe on that a little bit, how do you know if you have this gift, this gift of marriage or gift of singleness? And I haven't actually read an article or a book that really explains that very well. So if you have a great idea, I would love to talk to you. Maybe you want to write that book <laughs> about that topic. Because what I kind of did, uh, reduce it down to is that most authors say you have the gift of singleness if you are single. I'm like, that's not very helpful to me. Uh, Another article say, you know you have the gift of married if you look down at your hand and you have a ring. You're married. You have the gift of marriage. I'm like, I'm not sure that's really uh, helpful for me. Because the question I find people are asking isn't so much of whether I have the gift of singleness or not, but the question below the question is whether I want the gift of singleness. I want the gift of singleness or not. Also, if they're single and looking, does that mean that they're being discontent in their singleness? That's the question below the question. Now, maybe it's unsatisfactory for you because this sermon isn't going to address those questions <laughs> so much. But actually, it's going to help us to understand the role and the purpose. I was trying, all that is to, I'm trying to paint the complexity of the topic, uh, how difficult it is to talk about. But I'm going to talk about what the role and the purpose of it is and what the church, what we as the church ought to do. And in the preparation for the sermon, I read a couple books and I have them here with me. It's uh, Seven Myths uh, About Singleness by Sam Elbury and another book, Re uh, Redeeming Singleness by Barry Danielak. I have a couple copies of this one and one of this. If you would love to pick up a copy after this and read it for yourselves, it's yours. Uh, give it back because someone else might want to read it uh, afterwards. But this one is, uh, if you're looking for something a little bit more theologically weighty and heavy, this is it. It's going to take some gymnastics in your head <laughs> to get through what he's talking about as a theologian. Uh, this one addresses questions like, uh, do singles experience intimacy still? Or how do singles still have a family? Or uh, the, the topic of how singleness is hard. So uh, th these are just resources uh, for you. But what I'm hoping to address today isn't so much of how to live life as a single, but where does singleness fit within our life? without our understanding of relationships. And this might be Sam Elberry's, uh, one of the books I'm quoting here, might be his whole thesis, and I really like this quote. He says this. He says this. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. This is why the church needs single people, not a supposedly endless source of free babysitting, but to remind us that the joy and the fulfillment of marriage in this life is partial and can only be temporal. The presence of singles who find their fullest meaning and satisfaction in Christ is the visible 
physical testimony to the fact that the end of all our longing comes in Jesus. I love that right in the beginning. Or if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, what the gospel looks like, singleness shows us its sufficiency, how the gospel is enough for us. The big idea is this. Christian singles living contently can show us the sufficiency of Christ. And I took that just straight up from the author. That Christian singles, and I have to highlight that it is Christian singles because that's the worldview that we're talking about. That's the frame of reference that we're coming at this topic of. Living contently, meaning having this right relationship, this fulfillment in Christ can show us that this, show us the sufficiency of Christ himself. And two points, which I don't have up there. <laughs> two points. Our relationship status doesn't define our worth. And secondly, our reference for fulfillment in life is Jesus alone. We read this in Luke 20, 34 to 35, and Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered, considered worthy, worthy, if you have your Bibles, highlight that word, considered worthy, to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, sons and daughters, being sons and daughters of the resurrection. Firstly, what we get in this text, as Jesus speaks on marriage and singleness a little bit here, is that relationships don't define our worth. To Christian singles can show the sufficiency of Christ because their earthly relationships don't define them as they seek out this desire to live contently in Christ. I did a bit of a, or a bit some research in Stats Canada, a statistic, Statistics Canada. In 2021, there were 9.49 million single men in Canada and 8.45 single women in Canada, uh, which is the highest. It's on the rise uh, every single year. In 2022, I looked up stats. That's the last stats they have on divorces. In 2020, uh, 2020 there were 4, uh, 42,933 divorces in Canada, which maybe this encourages you, is the lowest since 1973. I'm like, oh, that's great. Maybe couples are staying together. But stats can't put a little asterisk that burst in my bubble. Uh, it says it's attributed to because there were barriers to accessing court services during COVID-19. So it's not that couples weren't wanting to get divorced. It's actually they couldn't get access to legally divorce each other uh, in, in the courts. And this divorce rates... Uh, aren't very um, encouraging for us. The divorce rates might also be uh, looking low, uh, might, uh, might be lowered uh, in our stats, but that's because marriage rates are also getting lower. Divorces are happening less because less people are getting married. And I was reading one article, article that puts it in this way, we've sold young people in an uninspiring version of marriage where men are saying they're not getting married because of wedding costs, and pre preparation is too hard since when were those the reasons for getting married anyways? On women's side, they're saying that they're getting married because, or not getting married because their current situation would just fine, which seeks to the, that, the, which seeks to the tensions of how it's just settling. It's just the way it is. Why pursue anything else? Or in 2016, uh, the stats show that 21.3 of all couples were living common law more than three times of that in 1981, where it was just 6.3%. Now, with singleness and the cohabitation, why I'm saying this, with singleness and cohabitation on the rise and not getting married, 
all of this sounds pretty normal. When Jesus says, don't get married, they will be okay. That sounds normal to us. But if we think about this from the first century listener, that's outrageous. That's outrageous for the first century listener. That wasn't the case back then. It was what you did. Marriage was something that you did, rightly or wrongly. It was what you did, not just for financial stability, but for status and for passing on the family line. That's just what you did. So when Jesus comes along and says that, no, that's not the case, those aren't the ones that are going to be blessed, that goes against the grain. So how do we understand singleness then? That singleness is this blessing here that Jesus is talking about. See, when the Bible speaks about singleness, it's often referring not only to those who do not marry, but rather to those who have set aside the right of marriage and procreation for something greater, for the kingdom of God. And this is significant, especially in light of Judaism and throughout the Old Testament, that the understanding of this covenantal blessing that they have is seen through children. Abraham, right? Your, your children, is going to, your, 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 your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. That's the crux of the covenantal blessing, but not so much in the New Testament. See, Jesus is suggesting that in the new covenant, some, uh, they're willing to give up this blessing of both marriage and offspring for the sake of the kingdom of God. And to be blessed in the kingdom of God no longer requires marriage, no longer requires offspring. You're like thinking, well, what does marriage fit in this? That's in two weeks. <laughs> you, you'll come and see that. But for those who didn't get married, people would have thought, would have thought that there's something wrong with them. In that, in that first century moment, so there's something wrong with them, like someone, they're undesirable, or no one wants to be with them. They might have even believed, the society might have even believed that they were cursed by God to not have this relationship. But Jesus flips it around. Jesus flips it around. He says, he says this, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus flips the, 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 the tide and changes the tide. Because what does worthiness, it all hinges on this, what does worthiness have to do with this? Someone hearing that story of a woman having all seven husbands die and not having kids wouldn't say shame. Shame on that person because something, they must have done something wrong. But Jesus flips that around in essence says, Jesus is saying that to those who are, who, who are, are married, he flips it around and says, those who are married, they're actually missing out in this moment here. They're missing out because those who are living contently a life of singlehood are already ahead of the game. Those who are living contently in their relationship with God, they're already ahead of the game, and they're getting a taste of the future glory that awaits all of us. They're not only experiencing that in the future, but they're experiencing that right here, right now. And those who are single and content in their relationship with Christ know all the more how any earthly relationship, they wrestle with that desire. Know any earthly relationship won't compare to the one they're going to experience in the presence of almighty god that's their earthly desire that's what they yearn to desire and experience here on earth whereas for me as a married person being away in toronto for two weeks away from my family honestly my prayer wasn't god draw me closer to you <laughs> was god i want to see my family and again there's nothing wrong with that but singles reveal this, this desire that all of us ought to learn from. All of us ought to live out. And how can those who are single not die anymore? And how can they be equal to the angels? Well, angels, as our understanding, except from the fall, angels are content because they're with God forever. 
They're in this perfect relationship with him. They don't need anything else and are perfectly taken care of. And maybe that's why Barry Daniel, like he says this in his book, therefore the fount of true blessing is not to be found in the traditional values of having a great physical family. And that might speak to you who are trying to have family and have kids but can't. As good, satisfying, rich, and rewarding as that can be, and it can be, rather true blessing is ultimately found in righteousness before God and having a right relationship with him. It is what Jesus was about to offer and accomplish for sinful people through his atoning death on the cross. The fount of true blessing is not to be found in our, what our traditional values are, what we think makes us worthy, but in God alone, he is the one that's sufficient for us. He is the one that defines our worth, which goes into the second point here, that our reference for fulfillment is Jesus himself. See, Christian singles can show us the sufficiency of Christ because why? Jesus is our example. And Jesus, last time I checked in scripture, he never married and he was single. How do we wrestle with that? Right? How do we understand that? How do we gain a biblical worldview of marriage and singlehood in light of that? We see that Jesus, he alone is considered worthy. Flip all the way to the end, uh, to the last book of the Bible in Revelations 5. In the loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Who are all the angels and all the elders and all of creation in heaven right there? Who are they declaring to be worthy? Jesus. Jesus is the worthy one. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Jesus is the worthy one and our example of what fulfillment looks like, what the good life looks like. Now, Jesus displayed for us what it means to be human, to be complete. Jesus didn't need marriage, romantic fulfillment, or sexual experience in order to be more manly, in order to be more full. Jesus was perfectly content because he was perfectly connected with the Father. He had this relationship with him. As Sam Albury says, he is the most complete and fully human person who ever lived. So his not being married is not incidental. It shows us that none of these things, marriage, romantic fulfillment, sexual experience, is intrinsic to being a full human being. The moment we say otherwise, the moment we claim a life of celibacy to be dehumanizing, we're implying that Jesus himself is only subhuman. Or John Piper, read another passage, uh, another quote for you, which I don't have up there, do I? It did not load. The greatest, wisest, and most fully human person who has ever lived never married Jesus Christ. His greatest, greatest apostle never married and was thankful for his singleness. Jesus himself said that in the age to come, we do not marry. And he added that the age to come had already broken into this world. Therefore, the presence of single people in the church not only attests the sufficiency of Christ for the reception of God's covenantal blessings in the new covenant, but also reminds us that the spiritual age has, has already been inaugurated in Christ and awaits an imminent consummation. Christians in our church who are living contently in Christ have a vital role, not only to serve others around, that's not the purpose, just to serve others, but they serve as this this great reminder for us of the spiritual age to come and what it looks like to have a life that desires Christ, that desires him. And ultimately, as we look to Jesus, what it means to be human, that maybe rubs us many in the wrong way, rubs our culture in 
the wrong way because in our culture, we define the climax of human existence as sexual intimacy, as romantic fulfillment, as marriage. And if a person isn't and hasn't and isn't currently experiencing that, then the person is just missing out. They're subhuman. They haven't experienced the full uh, meaning of life, what the purpose of our lives are. But is that true, though? How can that be true? See, the culture we're in may have us believing how romantic fulfillment is fundamental to being human. Our sexuality, who we are attracted to and not attracted to, defines us. That's how our culture will have us believe. I think that's because we have this misunderstanding of what intimacy looks like, of what intimacy looks like. But Jesus, he showed us another way, how to be fully human. And often we look negatively upon singleness because we believe the choice of singleness and celibacy is a choice between experiencing intimacy and loneliness. That when we tell someone that to choose singleness and celibacy, we're condemning them to a life of, of loneliness or condemning them to, as, a, as if singleness is a punishment in itself. But our culture, it tells us that the only, and that's maybe because our culture tells us the only way to, to feel like you're loved or worthy or the only way to express intimacy is through sex. That's for another day. <laughs> I'll unpack that a little bit. But perhaps this is what leads to many who have experienced sex, who have this sexual experience without experiencing true intimacy. They're not necessarily the same thing. And maybe it's the other way around. What if we can still experience intimacy without sex and romanticism? What if we can experience having a family without being married? What if we can experience intimacy through true friendship? As C.S. Lewis, he says this in one of his writings, those who cannot conceive friendship as substantive love, but only as a disguise or elaboration of eros, betray the fact that they have never had a true friend. Let's read that again. Those who cannot conceive friendship as real love, only disguise, uh, only as a disguise, uh, see friendship as only a disguise or elaboration of eros, betray the fact that they have never actually experienced friendship before. Because Jesus, though single, though never married, experienced intimacy not only in his close relationship with God, the Father, but also with his disciples, whom he calls his friends. Or we think about other passages, which uh, Pastor, Sam, uh, Pastor Bill last week uh, referred to. Uh, we think about Jonathan and, and David. We read this in 1 Samuel 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. What are you thinking about when you read this passage? We read this passage in our 21st century Vancouverite eyes, and maybe you read it with this homoerotic sense, the slant, which many people wrote. Actually, many people would argue that this was David and Jonathan were homosexuals. That's what their argument is. This is one of the texts that they will read here. But why is that? Why do we read the passage like this and automatically think in that way? Why is that? Why can't friends truly experience intimacy without having some sort of sexual experience? See, some authors argue that King David, though he had sexual relations with many women, cheating on his own wife even, 
that he never actually experienced intimacy in any of them, which is what he's chasing after, which he here explains when we get a glimpse here that he actually explained, experienced the, the truest of intimacy through his friendship with Jonathan, that it's possible here. And this speaks into how dangerous it is for our culture and for, and, and for those that are looking to, to date and looking to marry and couples that are in relationship right now who don't understand and learn how to be friends before they're married. That affects the marriage itself because it's boiled down to a sexual experience. It's boiled down to just the fact that being married is boiled down to a status. That's what we understand marriage and relationship and the essence of humanity and fulfillment of our lives to be. But Jesus experienced intimacy with those around him and with God without having any of those. And Jesus himself also experienced family, though he was single. We read this in Matthew 12, 46, 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood beside him wanting to speak to him. And then someone told them, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied in verse 38, uh, 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And they're putting up their hand outside like, I'm your mother and I'm your brother. But verse 49, pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What Jesus does here, he's saying that whoever belongs to the kingdom of God, they're my family now too. And I experience this closeness with them that's closer than blood. Man, I don't know what you think about that, but that's what Jesus is saying here, that those that are covered by the blood of Jesus are closer than your family's blood because of how much he has loved you, because of how, the deep relationship that God has and wants to have with you. You see, if sexual intimacy, romantic fulfillment, and marriage is the climax of human existence, does that mean Jesus wasn't fully human? No. We see this here, that he is who he says he is, that he experienced what it means, the fullest of life. He's lived that out. And though Jesus was single and never married, we would have never said he didn't experience intimacy, that he never experienced family. See, in Matthew 19, Jesus speaks about the eunuch, and I'm not going to go into that too much, but how some don't have a choice, but highlights the ones who do have a choice that still choose to be a eunuch or still chooses a life of celibacy, or still chooses a life of singleness. And the reason is because they have set themselves aside for a purpose. See, J Jesus chose to be single for a specific reason that gave him a purpose, that gave him fulfillment, that gave him an understanding and a reasoning for life. And I believe we do have the same choice here today for those that are single, that are consider themselves, either that are single in their lives. If they were to choose between singleness and a relationship. This is the encouragement for all of us, but specifically for those that are single. If they were to choose between singleness and a relationship that doesn't honor God, I pray that you would choose the first. If you were to choose between singleness and a relationship that doesn't honor God, you would choose singleness. That's a hard message. That's a tough message if it is a punishment to loneliness, if it means you'll never experience intimacy, if it means that you'll never experience what many others in life will experience. It might be hindsight, but we can think of those relationships that end in divorce and those marriages that should have never happened to begin with. And quite frankly, there are some who it would be better if they remained single because they, will have this tough under they didn't have this foundational understanding of what marriage is. And yes, 
God can change narratives. And yes, God can use people and marriages to bring someone to faith, but we don't test God in that way. We don't test God in that way. It's better to remain single than to dishonor God in our desires, in our purposes, in the way that, ways of living that only we think is best. And someone would say, what about 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, if, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I would say this, our sexual desires shouldn't be the driving force for someone, whether someone gets married or not. That's not what Paul is saying. Because if that's the case, I believe this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 is often misunderstood and misquoted. Paul is saying that passion is a metric we measure with whether someone should be married or not. Because if that's the case, anyone that hits puberty, puberty should be married right then and there. Our passion and our desires for that is not the, the bar for whether we're re ready or should get married. So when a Christian is choosing to remain single, it's not because they're choosing loneliness or because they're not good enough for a spouse. There's many reasons why people are single. But maybe we'll have to think of it because they're choosing Christ in that moment. How are we as a community honoring and helping each other in that? That someone is saying, hey, I'm going to say no to this relationship that's dishonoring to God, and they're actually choosing singleness. How are we supporting them? How are we loving them? How are we encouraging them? How are we walking with them? Because let's let in the plane here. I'm way over time. <laughs> as a church family, we need to do a better job in helping our single brothers and sisters in Christ to choose Christ, to live the holy life, to follow God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They need to know that if they choose to be single in this moment for the glory of God, that there will be a community of brothers and sisters who will be there for them. It's going to be their family. It's going to provide that intimacy through that deep spiritual kind of friendship that we've been talking about. And church, this is the rebuke for us, for me, as I was wrestling with this passage and with this text, that we can and we need to be better. What if we could help those that are struggling? What if our actions help build stronger friendships, stronger marriages in the future? What if our friendships with those that are single help people and us, not just for the benefit of the single, but for us as well, to follow God more and in a healthier way? And we often say we're too busy, but... What would it look like to include everyone into our circles? Could it be that we've idolized marriage? That that's, hey guys, that's the bar that everyone needs to hit. If you're not married, you're short. What if we've been idolizing marriage as a church? And marriage is good, I'm going to get to that. I'm not denouncing marriage. But what if we idolize marriage so much that we've closed the door to close friendships and relationships for those who are single and they're leaving the church? And they're leaving the faith because they feel like there's no place for them in the kingdom of God. Yes, I believe in the nuclear family, but what would it look like for us to expand our capacities to include singles in our lives? We need to do a better job in terms of providing intimacy, family, and relationships for those who are single in our churches. And it starts just by opening up our time, opening up our homes. And I read this, I believe it was I can't remember now, all kind of blends together. I think it was in this book <laughs> about the idea of giving a key to your home. And the author talks about how one of the defining moments for him as a single was when another married couple came up to him and said, I know you don't need this, 
and it might not mean too much, but here's, our here's the key to our house. You're welcome anytime because you're family. What if we live with that kind of attitude as a church, that we include those that are single into our families? Now, I'm not saying just to have more coffee and lunches and dinners together. I'm saying living life together. Because as Rosaria Butterfield, she writes this in her book, the gospel comes with a house key. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. What if we live with this hospitality and we give people our, our house keys, that they're welcome anytime into our lives? Yes, we have families. Yes, we have responsibilities. But to include them in, because if we are to be a community that cares for our single brothers and sisters, then we need to be a community that opens up our homes to have these conversations, not to make it awkward, not to shun them and be like, hey, there's a singles ministry for you. That's where you belong. For the rest of us, we're over here, but you're over there. No. Church, we're a body. We're together in this. We walk together. We mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those that rejoice. We live life together to the fullest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. And I know in the shortcomings of myself and my own words, God, that I don't do this topic justice. But Father, I pray that you would speak, that you would be our desire, you would be our full reason for being. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for all of us to learn what contentment in Christ looks like. God, I pray for us as a church that we would be a church body that really lives out to be the body of Christ that we will embrace all in this life, that they will find a home here at Lord's Love. And specifically today in this topic of singleness, God, I pray for, our, for those that are single, Lord, that in their desires of wanting to, to honor you, God, I pray that you would encourage them to press forward. And as a community here, Lord, may we provide a sense of intimacy and community. Not a sense, Lord, a real, a, a real body of intimacy and connection and family for those, Lord, that are wrestling with this topic so that they will find a home here. Father, you invite us to dine with you at the table. May we open up our homes as well, open up our lives. Increase our capacity, God, so that we can love people more and more in the ways that you have loved. Thank you, Lord, that our worth is in you and nothing in this world ever compares to a relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.